So it was June, I think, of 1989. June 1989, was a while ago. And I was on vacation with my family in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And something happened during that vacation, 1989, that may have very well changed the course of my life. And I want to tell you about it. And maybe you experienced it too. 1989. I went to the movies with my family. And I saw the Michael Keaton Batman movie. Yes, you remember that? Tim Burton was the director. You had uh, Jack Nicholson was the Joker. And it was, I mean, it was the movie of that year. In fact, it, it eclipsed all of the movies. I think it became the fourth or fifth biggest uh, box office hit uh, up to that point. Uh, made tons of money. Great movie. Uh, sure, there have been lots of other Batman movies since then, okay? And, and they've been great, some of them. There are some Batman movies we just shall not speak of, <laughs> Batman Forever. Um, but there are some that have been really, really good. But it all began, I believe, with the 1989 Batman movie. Uh, I loved it. It, it, it really, uh, it became the godfather of comic book-themed movies. It really did because it, it moved you into a room of, of realism where suddenly uh, it, there were Batman movies and TV shows before. You might remember the cartoonish, you know, from the 60s, Batman, and it was boom, pang, zow, Batman, you know. Uh, but this is when things got real and, and, and it addressed a real issue, which is like there's, there's bad stuff in the world, like really bad things. And there's got to be somebody good to stand up for it. Um, and so uh, I need a timeout real quick. <laughs> timeout, because you might be new here today, and you're like, okay, so far this dude has talked about fantasy football and Batman. I think I'm in the wrong building. I thought I was coming to church today. Um, well, we're doing a really cool series right now called At the Movies. And, uh, you know, something that Jesus did a lot was he would use uh, popular topics or things that were people on people's minds, or he would tell stories like parables uh, to get to the deeper root of something bigger that he wanted to talk about. And so once a year, we take uh, some time to do a special way of that by using movies as a springboard, as a launching pad into a much deeper thing that we want to discuss about God today. Uh, and so we are in this series at the movies, and this is Superheroes Edition. And so we've done some superheroes. We did Captain America. We did uh, Green Lantern. Actually, Patrick did that a few weeks ago. And then I am stepping in today. Here's the big reveal. It's Batman, if you didn't know already. Um, and so here's the thing about Batman. Uh, like every superhero, Batman has a backstory. And, and of all the backstories, or you know, his, his history before he became a superhero, or how he became a superhero, Batman's may be um, one of the most well-known, but you might not know it or may have forgotten. So let me give you some of the big building blocks of Batman's backstory, because it really lands in the zone of where we're going to go today as we talk about what God has for us. Uh, Batman's story begins, he's a young man, and his real name is Bruce Wayne, okay? And Bruce Wayne, uh, he's a kid, and he's out on the town with his parents, and his parents get mugged, they get robbed, and he witnesses his parents being shot by a criminal, right? Well, this moment, obviously terrifying, uh, traumatic moment, but this moment becomes formative of who Bruce Wayne becomes. He runs away. He's just all upset. His parents are, are rich people, the Wayne family, very prominent people. They got huge property that they lived on. And on that property, he discovered these caves. And in the caves were what? bats, okay? And so this is his first encounter with bats. And while he's in there, I think initially he's really scared of the bats, but he learns to kind of embrace the fear. And through that, he kind of develops this plan. He sees uh, this, this image of the bat, of something that really strikes fear in a lot of people. Are anybody scared of bats in the house? Like there's, you know, there's this fear. I mean, they're creepy. They're creepy little mice with wings. Uh, no one likes mice. Give them wings and it's terrible. And so he's like, I'm going to take these, these bats and, and I'm going to learn from them. And so one thing bats, they thrive on is darkness, 
and they thrive on living in the shadows, and they thrive on stealth. And so Batman, with no superpowers whatsoever, decides to train to become a crime fighter. Uh, It also helps that he's like a billionaire, and he's like a uh, super detective ninja warrior. And so those things help to to make him an awesome superhero. Um, The thing I like about Batman is that he seems the most relatable to me. Like, I was never born on another planet. You know, I didn't get that opportunity. I was deprived as a child. Uh, I wasn't born with mutant abilities. But, you know, Batman makes you think, like, anybody could help, right? He's the Steph Curry of superheroes, right? He's like, I think I, think I could do that, even though, no, you really couldn't. You think you could. I love Batman, and one thing I like about Batman is that in the darkness, he's still good, because I can understand that. I understand the darkness and, 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 and the hurt that's happened in my life, and the thing that I want to kind of come to and bring us to a place together is this. There's something that happened in Bruce Wayne's life that led him to becoming Batman, and it was seeing the murder of his parents. It caused in him a pain and a suffering that was so deep that he just had to act. He had to do something. He was left with this question, what do I do with this pain? Of all the Batman movies, I think probably uh, one of the greatest characters throughout them all is the character of Alfred. Anybody like Alfred? He's the butler of Bruce Wayne uh, and also Batman's uh, crime-fighting companion in many ways. Uh, Alfred's a great guy, and not only does he work for the Wayne family, but after the death of his parents, Alfred ends up uh, kind of taking on Bruce Wayne as his ward and, and raising him very much. And in, I think some versions of the comic books, maybe he even adopts uh, Bruce Wayne and becomes like his legal father, guardian. Um, and so there's this scene from one of the newer movies, one of the Christian Bale Batman movies that have come out over the last couple years, uh, that, that really... It shows a relationship between Bruce, or Batman, and Alfred, and it unpacks a piece of Batman that I think is often overlooked, his pain. Check out this clip. There's nothing out there for me. And that's the problem. You hung up your cape and your cow, but you didn't move on. You never went to find a life, to find someone. Alfred, I did find someone. I know, and you lost them, but that's all part of living, sir. But you're not living, you're just waiting, hoping for things to go bad again. Remember when you left Gotham, before all this, before Batman, you were gone seven years, seven years I waited, hoping that you wouldn't come back. Every year, I took a holiday, I went to Florence, there's this cafe on the banks of the Arno. Every fine evening I'd sit there and order a Fernie Branca. I had this fantasy that I would look across the tables and I'd see you there with a wife, maybe a a couple of kids. You wouldn't say anything to me, nor me to you. But we both know that you'd made it, that you were happy. I never wanted you to come back to Gotham. I always knew there was nothing here for you except pain and tragedy. And I wanted something more for you than that. I still do. There's a lot of great scenes we could go to with Batman. He's fighting scenes and he's, you know, beating somebody's tail or he's, he's driving to some awesome Batmobile or Batwing. But this scene, to me, it summarizes what makes Batman Batman. 
And it's, it's how he's dealing with this emotional and psychological thing that's going on in him. He mentioned the loss of someone that he once loved. And so in this particular storyline, not only had he lost his parents, but he'd also loved someone that he loved beyond that. And it's, and it's this question, what do I do with this pain? Pain. Pain, that's our word for today. I want to take a second to unpack it because the question of what do I do with this pain is something that I think we can all relate to. Maybe, uh, maybe you didn't uh, lose your parents in a traumatic way. Uh, I think some of you did, actually. Um, but maybe you've experienced pain in, in other ways. It might have just been uh, through being bullied as a, as a young kid. It might have been uh, the, the separation of your parents that started a roller coaster of pain. It might have been something bad that happened at work. Or maybe you had a spouse leave you. Maybe you had the loss of a child. I mean, these things... They leave a mark, don't they? And that mark is pain. What do I do with this pain? Well, Bruce Wayne became Batman, and we can't all do that because <laughs> that would be silly. Um, but one of the deepest questions ever asked, I believe, is the question, what do I do with this pain? Um, I want to put a pause on the Batman story for a minute. Because here at Venture Church, we love to look to the Bible for the answers to life's most important questions. And I believe that this one, this question of pain, may be one of the most important questions that most people wrestle with. In fact, it's something uh, that uh, is one of the biggest objections people have to there being a God at all. Or maybe there is a God, but he's definitely not a loving God that the Christian God talks about. Like that, That's not who God is. How could there be a God that would cause this much suffering and this much pain in the world? You ever heard that? You ever thought that? I've had that thought. It's the question that so many people wrestle with, and they land on the side of, you know, there is no God. There's a book uh, called The Problem of Pain. It's by an author named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is most famous for uh, his children's allegorical works, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. There's even been some movies made over the last couple years about him. Uh, very famous author. Um, and, and, but before all that and before the, the fame he has now, uh, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, and it's become kind of a pivotal work on the topic of pain and Christianity. And near the beginning of this book, he writes this. I've got the quote on the screen here. I'd like for you to follow along. And this is what he says. Just so you know, you may know C.S. Lewis as a Christian author, um, but before that, he was actually not a believer in God at all. He was an atheist. And so this is what he says. Not many years ago, when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, why do you not believe in God? My reply would have run something like this. Listen to this. Follow this. He says, Look at the universe at which we live, in which we live. By far, the greatest part of it is empty space, cold and dark. That's the universe. Let's go to Earth. On Earth, life is so arranged that all forms of it can live only by preying on one another. You ever watch a nature show, right? That's how it goes. In higher forms of life, there appears to be a quality called consciousness, which enables creatures to suffer pain. Human beings also have reason, which enables them to foresee their pain, causing immense mental suffering. Their history, human beings, is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror. You following him so far? It's pretty true. So he says, if you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. So you might know C.S. Lewis says, as a Christian author, a brilliant scholar, he's best known for the things he said in favor of God, in favor of there being Christianity and in favor of Jesus. But back when he was that guy, the guy who was just struggling to understand who God was or whether or not he even existed, one of the biggest reasons he found himself in that boat was this question, what do I do with this pain? What do we do with suffering in the world? 
You know, it might be easier just to avoid the question altogether. I think that's what a lot of us do, actually, right? Sweep it under the rug, ignore it. We get hobbies. We become alcoholics. I mean, that's, that's what we do. That's how we deal with pain. But I don't think it's safe. And I think the way that we understand and have the conversation about what do I do with this pain means a lot, not only about how we view ourselves and how we move forward, but how we view God and how we can move forward in this world. It, the question of pain is not one that the Bible avoids at all. Uh, If you've ever wondered, uh, all through the Bible, we see people experiencing pain. We see God interacting with them through their pain. In fact, Jesus himself, you can read about it in the book of John, which is kind of a biography of the book of of the life of Jesus. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 33, this is Jesus. He says this, in this world, you will have trouble. And this is in a, a bigger context of him just explaining, like, this is the world we live in. You can't avoid it. It's part of the human condition. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about pain. What does the Bible have to say about it? So if you've got a Bible, uh, if you would, open it up. Uh, if you don't have one with you, uh, there are some underneath your seats. You can also feel free to use it on your phone. And, and the verses we'll be looking at will be on the screen behind me as well. Um, but we'll be in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. This is the book of beginnings. It's the book of you know, uh, creation and the story of how God kind of first began to interact with humankind and, and the early history of the Jewish people. And so you can turn there. We're going to be in the book of Genesis. We're actually going to be talking about a story that happens. Um, I want to put these chapters up here. It happens through, from chapters 37 all the way to chapter 50 of Genesis. That's huge. And don't worry, we're not going to read all that today. That's a lot of Bible to read in one sitting, and we don't have the time really to discuss it the way that I think we would want to. But I want to encourage you to do this. Go home this week and read Genesis 37 through 50. If if it's been a while since you've opened the Bible, or maybe you have, this is just a good entertaining story, and it also lets you in uh, a picture of what God's doing in some people's lives. But what we're going to do, I'm going to kind of give you the Cliff's Notes version. Well, I'm not Cliff. This is the Chris's Notes version of this story. Uh, and, uh, And we'll flip through the story, and we will be looking at some of the verses specifically. But if you want to have that open, have your thumb in there, you can follow along because I'm going to give you the uh, kind of the placeholder so you can see where each part of the story is. Basically, this is a story of a guy named Joseph. Joseph. There are a couple of Josephs in the Bible, so I want to make sure you know which one we're talking about. There's one later on in the Bible. He's the one that you might know around Christmas time, and we see him in the little manger scene with, with Mary. She's, he's, he's like Jesus' stepdad. He's his human father. Uh, this, is, this is Joseph in the New Testament. That's not who we're talking about. This Joseph lived a couple thousand years before that, okay? This is the Joseph who had, uh, he had 11 other brothers. He was one of 12 brothers. These 12 brothers will eventually become the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and eventually the Jewish nation. But this is before that. This is before there's tribes. This is before there's nations. This is checking on the life of these boys when they're young men. And before any of that, it would be awesome just to go back in time, meet George Washington when he's like 10 years old, you know, meet meet the famous people throughout history. Uh, And this is what we're doing. We're checking in on this guy, Joseph, one of the 12 brothers, uh, back when he was a younger man. Joseph was the favorite son of all these boys' father, which caused a lot of trouble. Uh, he got a lot of special treatment. He received special gifts. And so the brothers really despised him. They couldn't stand their brother because it looked like their father loved him more than he loved them. Not only that, he started having these dreams. You can read about these dreams in chapter 37 if you want to like, browse through that. But he starts having these dreams. And uh, in the dreams, J- Joseph sees an image of himself, and he sees his brothers all bowing down to him, which is a pretty cool dream when you're like a little brother, right? <laughs> like one day all my brothers are going to bow down to me. But here's, here's kind of like relationship 101. Uh, if, if you, if you, 
Sibling rivalry lesson number 47. Okay, this is it. If you never received this training, you're getting some of it right now. This is one lesson. If you already have a hard time relating to your older brothers and they might hate you, don't go around telling them that you believe that you're having prophetic visions in which one day they'll bow down and worship you. Like that's not gonna go, that's not gonna go over well with your brothers who already don't like you. And so this, this uh, telling of these dreams to his brothers really set them off. And so they began to conspire against him. So as you fast forward through his story, the brothers had had enough. And so one day they kind of kidnap him. And then they fake his death. And then they sell him into slavery. Time out. I got a younger brother, okay? <laughs> and I've had like some spats with my younger brother. Never once have I thought of kidnapping him, faking his death, and selling him into slavery. Like things are getting really rough at your house when that begins happening. But that's how bad things had gotten with Joseph's brothers. He just, they didn't like him. They got rid of him. Things get worse for Joseph. You can read all about that slavery situation, how it went. But while he's living in slavery, he ends up being framed for a crime that he didn't commit. And so when his, when his owner finds out about this supposed crime, which I got to tell you, if you read the story, he didn't do it. He totally didn't do it. But he ends up getting thrown in jail in Egypt. And he ends up being in jail for 13 years. 13 years. Can you imagine? Okay, now I want to... Take a second and put myself in Joseph's shoes. First of all, my brothers have kidnapped me. They've thrown me into this pit, and then they, 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 they fake my death, and then they sell me into slavery. And I'm imagining I'm sitting like on the back of this wagon or walking behind this caravan of people, of slave traders, and I'm just like, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> right? Can you imagine the pain of thinking that your family, and maybe you experience this, that they hate you so much that they wish you were dead? That they'd rather see you off as a slave somewhere than to work through whatever issues you have. Do you think Joseph may have been left with this question, what do I do with this pain? What's interesting is as we read his story, we find that Joseph continues to worship God. It's an interesting piece of the story we'll get back to. And then imagine he's been uh, doing his best to be a good slave. It actually says that he kind of worked his way up in this the household and he became kind of a, a leader of the other slaves. But then he gets framed for this crime that he totally didn't commit. He's like, I'm innocent. And then 13 years in prison. God, where are you in this? And what am I going to do with all this pain? You should really read, uh, it's Genesis 37 through 40 that tells the story of what happens next. But I just got to ask you this question. If you were living Joseph's life, would God make any sense to you? In fact, maybe you're living your life and God totally doesn't make any sense to you. And you hear like, you're here for me? You love me? Um, not last time I checked. Things aren't going well. For me, it's what we go through a lot. It's what I see all the time when I'm meeting and talking to you and when I talk to my other friends and I just, I hear what's going through life, that one of our first reactions to there being pain and suffering in the world is, where is God? Is he on vacation? Has he taken a sabbatical? Does he even love me? And what am I supposed to do with this pain? So let's check back in with Joseph. Okay, so things are, are, are happening with Joseph. He's in jail, and, and while he's there, things kind of start to take a turn. Remember Joseph used to have these dreams, right? He was telling, having these dreams, and he was telling his brothers what they meant. Well, it turns out that Joseph has a gift. He's got a really good gift for interpreting 
dreams, you know, where people will dream something. It seems kind of mystical, and maybe, uh, and maybe it seems symbolic, and, and maybe it actually means something for your life. Well, it turns out that Joseph has this gift of being able to interpret dreams. So while he's in jail, he, he has some fellow inmates who are having these crazy dreams, and he's like, oh, I think I know what that means. And he tells them, and he interprets their dreams. And what's wild is for a couple of these guys, these dreams, the predictions that he makes and the interpretations that he gives are totally true like they come true and he actually says like this is going to happen to you and then it does he said this is going to happen to you. and then it does so this reputation for joseph being a dream interpreter begins to spread it spreads through the jail it spreads through some of the officers it begins to kind of spread up through the government meanwhile up at the king's house we're in egypt okay so the king in egypt back in this time is called pharaoh okay so we're at pharaoh's house pharaoh's having these dreams and they're wild dreams, and he doesn't understand them. He's like, if somebody could please help me out and interpret these dreams for me. So he's got all these, these, uh, these wise men coming in, these magicians, these sorcerers. Everybody's trying to interpret the, the king's dreams, the pharaoh's dreams, and nobody can help. Nobody can really give him any direction. He's like, ah, you know, off with your head. I don't know what pharaohs did. But he's like, it's not working for me. So he puts out this call, out this call, and he's like, I need anybody who can interpret dreams. Well, word gets around, and one of the guys who had talked to Joseph and who had had his dreams interpreted very accurately is now out of prison. And he's actually working near and around the Pharaoh's office. And he says, I know a guy. I, you're not going to believe this, but he's this guy. His name's uh, Joseph. And he's in jail right now, but he's pretty awesome in interpreting dreams. Pharaoh's like, I don't care. I don't care who he is. Bring him here. He's at his wit's end. He wants somebody to interpret these dreams. Uh, that must have been some crazy dreams too, by the way. Like I've had dreams. I just woke up normally like, I probably shouldn't have eaten that, you know, but he's like, I'm going to like bring people out of prison into my house so that they can tell me about my dreams. I don't know. Stories in the Bible, sometimes they blow my mind. Um, but someone tells Pharaoh about Joseph and this crazy turn of events happens where everything for Joseph is about to change. So he comes into the home of Pharaoh and Joseph gets the chance of a lifetime. He gets to meet the king and let's watch it play out. We're actually going to read some of these verses now. If you got your Bibles open and you wanted to look, we'll be in Genesis 41, okay? And we're going to be looking at a couple of verses there starting in verse 15. Genesis 41, starting at verse 15. It's also on the screen behind me. It says that Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. This next verse is kind of crazy for me. Remember, about the last 20 years of Joseph's life has been pain and suffering. Yet verse 16 says this. Well, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Isn't it interesting that Joseph gives God credit for this? Uh, we, we are quick to take credit for our own talents. Um, I'm a musician. I play guitar. And so if you came to me and said, Chris, you're a really good guitar player, I'd say, thanks. I spend hours practicing, and I've been doing it for years. It might not occur to me to go, God has given me a gift, right? But he's like, okay, I've been through all this pain and suffering, and you're really good at interpreting gifts. And he's like, inter interpreting dreams. And Joseph's like, yes. Actually, I am not. But God will give you what you need. It's interesting. It says something about Joseph's character and about his faith. And Pharaoh says, all right, it's good enough for me. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, but can you interpret my dream? So he begins telling him these dreams. He had had two, two recurring dreams. He tells Joseph all of them. You can read all about them uh, there in that passage. But after he hears them, Joseph immediately knows what the dreams mean. And let's read what he says. In Genesis 41, starting in verse 28, the second half of verse 28. It says, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Okay? He says, listen, Pharaoh, God is showing you something. This is what it is, verse 29. Seven years of great abundance are coming through the land of Egypt, which if you're Pharaoh, you're like, yay, seven years of great abundance, but seven years of famine will follow them. Boo, <laughs> that got bad quick. 
Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land and the abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. Verse 32, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Well, this adds up for Pharaoh. Whatever it is that makes Pharaoh believe Joseph, he's like, okay, what's the plan, Joseph? Huh? Look at the next verse. Oh, it's in verse 39. It says, the Pharaoh said to Joseph, well, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and as wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Can we take a second to take that in? Because like Joseph's like, he, he just got his first bath in 13 years, and first clean shave, and he's standing in front of the Pharaoh thinking, please don't kill me. And now Pharaoh's like, thank you for interpreting my dreams. You're in charge now. In fact, as you continue to read the story, Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of the, uh, of the plan, the mobilization plan for dealing with this famine where they begin to uh, stock up extra grain and things and putting them away because the seven years of, bat, of, of, of prosperous living uh, was a good time to store because the seven years of famine is coming. And so Joseph becomes in charge of all this. And I just want you to take a second to think about the last, like, we know at least 13, maybe 20 years of Joseph's life has been this roller coaster of pain. I mean, it began with the rejection, the betrayal, the hatred of his brothers, then this slavery and the lies and accusations that lead him to jail and then punishment and isolation. And all this must have seemed like an, just this fog between him and God. But then comes this breakthrough. Remember Joseph's brothers? Well, let's, let's, let's pause Joseph's story and let's come over here. Let's leave him here, okay? We'll come back to Joseph. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, <laughs> Joseph and his brothers are beginning to experience the famine. Okay, this is a couple years later. And just like everybody else, they're getting hungry. And just like everybody else, there's only one Walmart supercenter in the region. And where is it? Egypt. In fact, their brother Joseph's office. So they're sitting there like, listen, they're saying there's food in Egypt. We need to go get some supplies. And so they head into Egypt, and it's crazy, the irony of the situation as it plays out. They're standing out, and I imagine them in this long line of people, and each person comes up and tells them their name and where they're from and how many people in their family, and they're probably rationed out a bit of grain. And so as the line gets shorter and shorter, they get closer and closer, and they step up, and what's amazing, we're, we're gonna, I'll give you again the, the Cliff's Notes version of it, but Joseph looks out, and he immediately says, oh my goodness, <laughs> except he probably said it like in Egyptian language. And he looks at them. And he's like, those are my brothers. But they totally don't recognize him. Because whereas they're all kind of probably dirty and dusty and they've got these long beards because they're kind of Bedouin shepherd type people. He is Egyptian royalty now. He's probably got a clean shaved face and really nice clothes on and gold jewelry and stuff. And they don't recognize him. And the story plays out. I really appreciate Joseph's kind of uh, sense of justice in this because um, he probably could have done a lot of things to his brothers. But as soon as he realizes them, that it's them. He kind of plays with them a little bit. You, you got to read it for yourself. That's just a little teaser. Go, go read it for yourself. It's in uh, chapters 42 through 44. He messes around with them, but eventually he reveals himself to them. And he's like, guys, it's me. It's Joseph. Okay, we were in Joseph's shoes a second ago. Why me? What do I do with this pain? Put yourself in the brother's shoes for just a second. Yeah, you say words that you were told not to say in school, right? <laughs> you're like, oh, and you see Joseph. You're like, oh my goodness. 
It's our brother. Let's actually look what they say in, in chapter 50, verse 18. It'll be on the screen behind us. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. Like they're horrified to realize that the brother that they treated so badly, that they sold into slavery, that they, that they left for dead, he's now essentially the second most powerful man in the world. In fact, since he's a guy that controls the grain, it might be argued that he's the most powerful guy in their area right now. And they say, listen, we're sorry. We're your servants. And in a moment of justice, we're all kind of like, yeah, boy. And we're like, you know, chaining them up and taking them into prison. We'll see how you like 13 years in jail. But that's not how it goes. It's not how it goes at all. In verse 19, Joseph said to them, hold on, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? This sentence is huge. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I mean, think about the position Joseph's in now. If he hadn't gone through all that, if he hadn't been able to sit in prison, if he hadn't been able to give up this, uh, this, this, interpret, this interpreting dream and eventually make it to Pharaoh, just think how the world at the time would have been different. Verse 21, he says, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children and he reassures them, and he speaks kindly to them. Joseph's a better man than I, than I think I would have been. I hope, I hope I could have had the grace and the forgiveness of Joseph, and I think maybe, maybe I could, but I don't know. How many nights did he lay in his bed and be like, Ugh, my brothers, right? How many tear-filled evenings of pain and sorrow, and he thought, it's all of my brothers, but we find that something changed in his heart. Pharaoh said he was very wise indeed and that he was put in charge of all this stuff. And I think that Joseph had wisdom beyond probably what most of us have. And we see this when we look. You actually flip back a couple pages. You can see another encounter with him and his brothers. It's in Genesis 45 verse 8. Listen to what Joseph says to them. He says, so then, to his brothers, so then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And I'm like, time out, No. No, no, no. It wasn't God who sent you there. I'm pretty sure because I was reading back in 37 where your brothers, they threw you into a pit and then they faked your death and then they sold you into slavery. I'm pretty sure it was that lady who lied about you and, and, and said that you had committed this crime that got you thrown into jail. I'm pretty sure it was a bunch of other people that got you in this situation. I'm pretty sure it wasn't God. But Joseph says, no, that's not the way I see it. Joseph says to his brothers, maybe, maybe, maybe what you did was wrong, okay? And you probably deserve some type of punishment. I love what he said. Am I in the place of God that I should punish you? Wow. And then he says, you intended to harm me, but God was bigger. And God did something else with that situation. God took a circumstance that made no sense, that was wrong, that was evil, that was sinful, and he flipped it around and he transformed it into something good. In fact, even into a blessing, which brings me back to the question at hand. What do I do with all this pain? Why me? God, why did you put me through this? Why did you let our family experience this? Why did you let our nation have this thing going? Why did you let our neighborhood go through this? What do I do with all this pain? And pain is a result of many things. I've heard it said that pain can come from three places. I think probably more than that, but here's three to think about. Maybe pain is inherited it's inherited. It's something you, you, you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, but you were just born into it, or you just found yourself in the situation. It was inherited. Maybe pain is just experienced. Like I can't really put my finger on what it is, but it's just going on in my life right now. It's just experienced, like it's physically happening to me, or emotionally, or psychologically, it's happening. Or sometimes pain is created. It's created. It's because of something I did. 
or because of the cause and effect nature of life, right? Maybe I didn't do anything directly. Somebody else did something, and it was created, and then I experienced it. It was inherited. It's experienced. It's created. But the result of, of it is that it happens, right? It happens. It's a part of life that just happens, and it seems completely unavoidable. And many things can lead to pain. But that doesn't mean that God is absent. And that God doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. Earlier, I read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. Some of the reasons why he initially had decided that he was an atheist. But as he continues talking in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says some things that kind of blow my mind. One thing he says is that the existence of suffering provides a better argument for God's existence than an argument against it. Let me say it again, then let me explain it. That suffering and pain in this world may provide a better, uh, let me read this right. Suffering provides a better argument for God's existence than an argument against it. And, and this, is, this is what he says, and many people have come to this thought as well. Uh, the theory of life without God requires some other mechanism. And, and the best we can do as humans is some sort of evolutionary mechanism where it's just, it just happens, we're the product of chance. Okay? And for that to be, from what I understand about the system from the mechanism in which there is no God, the heart of that mechanism is something called survival of the fittest. It's saying, listen, it, the necessity is that one thing win and one thing lose. That's how life happens. That's how it goes. That's why we see it in nature. That's why we see it in, in, in basic communication with each other. That's why we see it in life. It's kill or be killed. Something must suffer so that something else can thrive. And there's no place in that system for compassion or for love or for grace. Because otherwise, the system can't continue. And if that's true... And I recognize that might be a, a worldview that you hold. And what I just said might be like, uh, no, I think you're pretty stupid for saying that. I want to respect you and say I think you're intelligent and I would love to talk more about it. And I don't want to oversimplify the matter. But if all that is true, if you can give me the grace of saying like, if it is true that there must be suffering for a system without God to continue. Okay. If we can just kind of at least start there. Then we're left in a world where as long as you can be the most powerful, your way is the new true way. And the new right way. Until somebody else takes you out. And that's essentially a system without God. And so perhaps the existence of pain and our desire to get through it is actually more of an argument that maybe there is a God. That there is a God because it allows us to experience something and then out of it we can have this, this sense that there should be something different. Why is there pain? I want there to not be pain. I want to experience love. I want to experience comfort. I want to experience grace. And is it possible that that is there because there is a being who has implanted that into who we are? We're not going to argue against the system because instead we say there is a better way. There is a chance for love. There is a chance for forgiveness. There is a chance for grace. I would encourage you to read The Problem of Pain. It's a good book. We have it at our public library. I checked it out last week. Um, but this is the good news of Christianity. This is what Christianity says and states and lives by, that there is a loving God and that he does care about your pain. So much that he decided to become like us. That God became human. And when God becomes human, when he puts on flesh, we have a name for that, and his name is Jesus. So when God comes down to earth and takes the form of Jesus, he says, you know what I'm going to do to prove my love for you? I, God, am going to experience pain and suffering. And I'm going to do it, and I'm going to defeat 
the one thing that you can't defeat, which is death and spiritual separation from God. And I'm going to raise from the dead. Why? Because I'm God and you can't kill God. And in doing so, I'm going to show you the way out. In Romans chapter 6, the author, Paul, he's an apostle. And in Romans 6, or sorry, sorry, chapter 5, verse 6, he says this about Jesus. He says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates, he demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, and I'll add, while we were still in our pain, Christ died for us. What do I do with this pain? Jesus says, let me have it. I'm going to let it die with me, and I'm going to give you another way out. See, God became the man Jesus, and like he did with Joseph, God can take that which was meant to bring us hurt and use it to make us stronger and to bring us purpose in life. That's the message of Christianity. Again, I don't want to oversimplify it, but a lot of you have heard enough of it to know, okay, I can see where these pieces start to come together. I can see what I can start to do with some of my pain. Uh, a little bit earlier in that same passage we just read from Romans chapter 5, uh, we're going to rewind to verse 3 and listen to this. It says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, our sufferings, our pain. This is Paul talking. He's talking about pain. He's talking about how we deal with pain. He says, we glory in our sufferings and our pain because we know that suffering produces perseverance. You ever heard the phrase, no pain, no gain? You, you ever tried to run farther than you did yesterday? I mean, it hurts a little bit. But at the end of the second run, you're like, I did it. I made it. And suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. People who quit everything, they're people of slack character. People who persevere are people of strong character. And they're the people that you want on your team, right? They're the people that you trust. They're the people you lean on. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character, hope. Suffering and pain can build us. In fact, it sounds to me like Paul here was the first to say, no pain, no gain. And it's not just empty wishing. It's not because the, the, the prize has already been delivered. Sometimes when people talk about hope, especially people who are cynical towards Christianity, and this might have been you and it might be you, they're like, yeah, 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 you hope, you hope. Like, it's, it's like the hope for the Easter bunny or the hope for the Santa Claus or the hope that I get a cool uh, present for my birthday. It's a hope. It's like a wishful dream. But God's like, no, no, you can hope in this because it's already been delivered. And you can keep reading Romans chapter 5 and it tells you about that, that he's given us his spirit as a deposit. He's like, listen, I, I've entered into your life and I'm helping you. Suffering can lead to hope if we can take it to the right place. I want to point out, we are never promised a life without suffering or pain. And so if part of your struggle with God is, I can't believe in God because there's a world full of pain and suffering, you've got to understand that God never said that that was going to be taken away, like, We've never been promised a world without suffering and pain. Jesus said, you will have trouble. That's the result of living in a world full of sin. Sin is what causes the chain reaction of pain and suffering in this world. Whether it's other people's sin that's impacting our life, or whether it's our sin that's impacting our life. Our bodies are temporary. Our lives are temporary. And life happens, but we're given a hand up when we turn to God. I love this passage also written by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 8. Listen to this. This might be you. If you're suffering right now, 
for real, listen to this. This is, this is the promise in, in Jesus. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side. You ever feel that way? Like, come on. You know, it's like you're doing your mime routine. You're like, how do I get out of here? You're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. You're perplexed. What do I do? But not in despair. Everything's not lost. You're persecuted, but you're not abandoned. You're struck down, but you're not destroyed. You hear that? The promise through Jesus is like, yes, things are going to get hard, but once you understand, you're hard pressed on every side, but you're not crushed. I've got you. I'm going to hold you together. You're perplexed, but don't despair because there are answers. You're persecuted. Yes, people are going to come after you and they're going to try to get you, but I'm going to tell you something. You're not alone. You're not abandoned. You've been struck down. I'm so sorry, but you can still stand back up, can't you? You haven't been destroyed. What do I do with this pain? What do I do with this pain? Well, first, don't give up on God. Don't give up on God because he hasn't given up on you. All throughout Joseph's story, we see these little tidbits that the author of the story adds in, and it says, and God was still blessing Joseph. And if you ask Joseph at the time, while he's eating rotten food and stale bread in prison, he's probably like, uh, nope, I'm not seeing the blessing. But God hadn't forgotten Joseph, and he was still there for him. The key, it seems, is to turn our lives over to God by trusting Jesus with our lives. I want to tell you, this is kind of the last thing, the big thing we'll look at. It's something that Jesus said. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11 in verse 28, and it's something I've, I have quoted from this stage many, many times. It's one of my favorite verses because I, I guess it resonates with me in my own life, and this is what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Hmm. Peace, rest. It's that nap that you wish you could have on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon, right? But you can't because you got to go do this thing, right? Anybody says, come to me. And I will give you rest. That's step one. Turn to Jesus. And then the next verse kind of gives us the, the next little piece of the equation. Verse 29. I'll read it and then I'll explain it. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and I'm humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's talk about that word yoke for a second. Uh, you might, if you know anything about agriculture, a yoke is a thing that will hook up maybe two, uh, two farm animals together, beasts of burden to pull a plow or something. That's, that's one way of saying that. But this idea of yoke from this passage is also something that came from the Jewish rabbis. And, and a yoke was a collection of a particular rabbi's teachings and lifestyle and worldview. And so you'd go to a rabbi and you'd say, hey, I want to follow you. I want to be like you. I want to learn from you. I want to take on your yoke. I want to be like you, right? Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you. And you know what he does? He makes a trade with us. He says, you take the burden of what it is to seek me and learn from me and be like me, and I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take the burden of what's happening in your life. I'll take the pain, I'll take the suffering, I'll take the ridicule, I'll take it. And day by day, moment by moment, action by action, the healing happens. And then the promise he gives becomes a reality. He says, I will give you rest for your souls. I'm not sure there's a way to avoid pain. God never promises it, like I said. But what I do see is that when we trust God, and I've seen this in my own life and in people that I love dearly and that have gone through terrible things, 
what I see is that when we trust God through our pain, that hope will deliver us. And in that hope, we find peace. We may have been thrown some situations in our life to cause us harm, but that which was meant to harm us, God can use for good. Bruce Wayne lost his parents, and he turned inward, and he turned away from others, and he isolated himself, and he became Batman. It's a great story. But you know what? That clip we just saw, that didn't fix his pain. No amount of putting bad guys in jail fixed his pain. And we can try to mask our pain and cover it with all kinds of different methods and all kinds of different philosophies and all kinds of different addictions and substances and all kinds of different relationships. But it's just covering up the reality that at the core, we're hurt and we're broken and we've got to take it to the creator who knows how we're made and how to put us back together. Only the God who created us, who gave us our purpose in the first place and who provided a path back for us can truly transform our pain into hope. And in that hope, we can find rest for our souls. I hope that gives you somewhere to take the pain. Let's pray. God, what a heavy topic to tackle this morning, to think of all the pain in the world. And Lord, we try to tackle it with all different methods. Um, you know, maybe we can fix the pain with one more election where the person that we like the most will just win and, and that'll fix everything. Or just for one more paycheck or maybe a raise. Maybe if we could just have one more relationship, one more new pair of shoes. One more drink. But Lord, you say, come to me. You say, bring your burdens and lay them down. Lord, thank you for the trade that you offer. And I pray this morning that we can take you up on that offer. And that when the question comes, what do I do with this pain? We can simply say, I, I took mine to Jesus. And sometimes days are still hard. But at the end of the day, I can go to sleep with hope. Knowing that you never let us down. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.